Well, ladies and gentlemen, here it is. And once again, it's time to go inside EMS. I am your host, Chris Sabalero. Kelly Grayson is still on special assignment, training the next generation of EMS provider. And we are very excited that he's doing that. I don't know if you've noticed, but the last couple of shows we've been using video. I want to go ahead and send you over to our YouTube channel at EMS, EMS One Video. Um, go ahead and check out what we're doing. And there's going to be a lot of things. EMS One is starting to do a lot more video. And we want to be able to uh, send you and give you some great resources as you go over there. So, you know, today's topic, you can see, I mean, Kelly Grayson isn't here, but I got a great guest. He's sitting in the in the co-host chair, but we are really going to pick his brain. You know, there's a there's a classic book out there called Moby Dick, right? And in this book, Moby Dick, Captain Ahab is looking for his great white whale. And anytime people, you know, people are elusive, they call him the great white whale. Well, our great white whale is here with us because we have tried to get him on this show a number of times, and he was always so busy. He's one of my favorite authors, an EMS, EMS One contributor, uh, Jonathan Lee. He writes Frontline Farm. If you're not a fan, you need to become a fan. But Jonathan Lee is a critical care medic in Toronto, Canada, with over 25 years' experience in 911 critical, hair, critical care, aeromedical, and pediatric critical care. He is currently delivering Kinder Medic, a program he developed to improve the confidence and competence of pre-hospital providers caring for the acutely ill child. Jonathan, I want to thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Thank you, Mr. Chris. How was that for an introduction, man? I mean, on your first show, you get this introduction. So, you know, as I said, yeah, we've been fans. Kelly and I are fans of yours, and you always seem to come up with great topics. You always seem to come up with things that make us think. We've talked about your articles on the show uh, a few times, and now you're here to talk about one of the latest ones you did. It was done on April 17th. If you haven't read the article, Research Analysis, Medazolam versus Morphine. Should we be using Medazolam instead of Morphine in congestive heart failure? There's been a lot of changes in congestive heart failure treatment over the years, where we really kind of went away from the pharmacological side and started to use more CPAP, um, a BiPAP. But now you're bringing us back to the pharmacological side with this research. Tell us a little bit about this study, Jonathan, and how you got involved or how you came across it. Um, it's the uh, the Frontline Farm article for EMS One has me sort of attuned to the. Um, all the, the new pharmacology evidence. I'm a big evidence-based person, man. I am huge when it comes to, to following the evidence. And there are a couple of sort of big, important keys that I always think about when I think about evidence is that we use words like evidence and research and literature. We use them interchangeably, but they don't mean the same thing, right? Just because it's written down somewhere or because you read the abstract, you know, and, and with all the social media stuff out there, um, to me, it's important to find out what the evidence actually says, right? Was it a good article? Was it a bad article? It worked really well in three people or it worked really well in 30,000 people, right? Those kind of things are important. Um, and then we need the evidence, like you alluded to, to sort of move us away from that dogmatic treatment. I, um, I'm not, you know, I've been doing paramedicine for <laughs> years. And I know that a lot 25, of things. We read it. Twenty five. <laughs> I know that. Uh, you know, and I've seen, as I'm sure you have. Um, you know that a lot of things are are 
in favor and out of favor and, and so on and so forth. So the evidence staying, it's my way of, um, you know, I cheat. I say that I do it to write the articles, but really it's, it's staying on top of these articles is how I stay current in my practice. Yeah. So. And I think that that's the way that we should all be. And, you know, one of the things that Kelly says all the time is that 50% of EMS is wrong. We just don't know which 50%, but it's good to see that there is finally um, evidence that's starting and, and people like you who are using the research to really kind of give us an upper hand to say, uh, we need to think about a different practice. Now, just because this evidence comes out and just because you write about it doesn't mean that this is going to be the change in EMS because we're still waiting for the people who are going to come back out and now say, this is poppycock and let us show you what the real research yeah, says. But, but let's talk about your article because I love your style of, of writing. You really kind of break this down and you really kind of make us think so maybe give us this the premise. And, and so there was a research that was going and talking about midazolam versus morphine. Just give us the premise and then we'll kind of go stair step with the questions about the research. So the idea is there's been a trend in the literature and the research in the past few years that, and I'm sure as you did, like morphine was the good cardiac drug. It was always, if anybody's got any cardiac stuff and they need analgesia, morphine's the go-to drug, right? And I grew up like that. Right. And um, it turns out over the past couple of years, when people actually look at whether the morphine is helping, um, you know, there were some red flags. And then when you talk about our use of morphine in CHF, you know, the kind of the disturbing thing was there was no evidence to support the use of morphine in CHF, right? It was, well, Chris always did it. And the way Chris explained it to me made a ton of sense. Yeah. And when I give it to the patients, they feel better. So must be a good thing, right? And it was really more to relax them than anything. That's what we would hear, especially in when they had an MI is that they're all freaked out and, you know, the, the fear of impending doom. And, you know, one of the things we do is we would give them morphine and maybe it worked on cardiac output. Maybe it worked on the cardiac, you know, oxygen, whatever it is. But as you said, there was never anything that really came out about it. And this is another one uh, when we talk about CHF that we were just doing it because, that's the way we've always done it. Oh, and the way it was always explained to me was it it was not, it helped, you know, the vasodilation, the drop in blood pressure, it helped that stretch, it helped, you know, the heart pump better. It, you know, the the vasodilation with morphine helps the blood pool. So if it's pooling in your feet, it's not in your lungs. And, and uh, you know, that whole <laughs> Frank Starling law, right? We're stretching right. the heart too much. A little bit of morphine takes a bit of the stretch off and it can pump better. And that all made sense in my head. But turns out um, that was us just sort of giving the morphine and then finding a reason why we should give it. Right. So this study wasn't done in the United States. This is a Spanish study, right? So if we read your article, population was 111 patients over the age of 18 who presented to one of seven Spanish emergency departments with a diagnosis of acute cardiac, cardiogenic pulmonary edema, uh, dyspnea, anxiety, and so on and so forth. And so when, when you think about this, you know, how did you come across it? And what made you look for this to say, you know, what's, how, how did you find it? I am, um, I have a, just a sort of slow, steady feed of um, a lot of the journal articles that come straight into my, um, straight into my mailbox. Yeah. And um, there are two big areas. You talked a little bit about the kinder medic stuff. So pediatrics is a flag for me. And then in the last couple of years with EMS, any of the pharmacology stuff is a flag. And it sounds pretty daunting to have all of this information come in. But it turns out that when you are dealing specifically with research that is important to pre-hospital care, 
there's not actually that much. So when something like this that directly affects us comes across um, comes across my email, it's it's pretty easy to grab it and uh, and um, give it a bit of attention. Yeah, interesting. I mean, because as you say, I mean, we don't see a lot of that you know research that goes to EMS. You know, I'm working on my doctorate now. Oh, and nice. actually thinking about doing a, a study that will reflect and help EMS. And I think I'm kind of leaning towards just to get a little bit, just to make this point, is I want to talk about the lack of leadership uh, training and how it re relates to resilience of EMS providers and how we're not, you know, because we always hear that, that we have a trouble with leadership. Well, let's yeah. go ahead and take another one of those problems and say the resiliency of EMS how is that, uh, you know, in relation to the poor leadership that, but anyway, but to your point, if people like me who aren't in EMS, uh, aren't doing anything, we really have to rely on what's happening everywhere else. And this one was coming out of the emergency room. So there was some exclusion criteria that really kind of set us, you know, mm -hmm. kind of set that up. And when you think about this from an experimental group, there were 56 patients, they received midazolam, one milligram IV repeated as required to a maximum of three milligrams um, in the control group, 56 patients, they received morphine, two to four milligrams IV, repeated to a max of eight milligrams. So now let's go ahead and get into the nuts and bolts of this. I mean, what did they find as far as treating people with midazolam versus treating them with morphine? Yeah, so to start off with, um, because I, it's my, like, this is the stuff that I think is important, is that um, I will draw your attention back to what you said originally, right? This is not practice changing. This is, there are a lot of little problems with this study that need, you need to pay attention. So this study comes out, it doesn't mean that everything changes overnight. So that's the one thing I want to point out, like a couple of things that you had said, it's in Spain. Um, so it's not the exact same context, right? It's in the eMERGE department. It's not pre-hospital. And the number of patients, like you said, there was only 55 aside. And it turns out that that was not the number that they wanted. That was not how many they set out to recruit. But it turns out that, and, and the other thing to point out is that they were looking at in-hospital mortality as their uh, endpoint. So whenever I read these studies, I go, this study is designed to tell me about in-hospital mortality. That's the most important information. The other stuff is less important is less um uh, uh that wasn't what the study was designed for not that it's not important right and in this case it certainly was important because the in-hospital mortality was the same but the study actually was stopped early by the ethics board because there were so many more adverse events in the morphine group than there were in the midazolam group and I find that interesting because this is the way we've been treating it for decades, right? Mm -hmm. And now is it just coming to light that we may be doing harm to these patients? I mean, mm -hmm. so when you talk about these adverse effects, what were they seeing? Yeah, it's funny, right? So the, the whole theory was, is it like you said, we give them a bit of morphine and they just, it, it reduces their anxiety. It makes them feel better. Um, and that's the benefit that we saw. That's the reason why they picked midazolam because they said, okay, the midazolam will help. It'll, and it also makes the study better. Cause if I give you saline, you can, you know, that it's not morphine, right? right? So it's hard to hide that. So the midazolam makes it reasonable because you get that anxiety reduction, but you don't get all the hemodynamic side effects right. that you do with morphine. And it turns out that the adverse events 
were related a lot to those hemodynamic side effects. Not what you would think, right? My first thought was morphine's going to put everybody to sleep. They're going to throw up, they're going to vomit, they're going to aspirate. It's going to be a sad problem. It's going to be, right, mm -hmm. right. it was all hemodynamic stuff. There was, for the most part, the adverse events were at least doubled in the, in the morphine group. And it was uh, heart attacks. It was atrial fib and it was shock. Yeah. And I just want you to know, I mean, instead of taking morphine for this show, I actually took midazolam just to see. So, I, you know, I was kind yeah. of for myself. So I am feeling okay. I'm going to tell you what I learned, Chris, in 25 yeah. years. All the world's problems are one of two things. Overdosing or underdosing. <laughs> right. So if the midazolam is not working, maybe take a bit more or a bit less right. and the will go better, right? So interesting. So let's talk about this and let's have a discussion about it. So when we think about this and and you do a great job of, of uh, you always have the same formats in your article, which I think really makes us think, right? Here it is. Here's the, what we did. Here's the, you know, when you talk about research, here's what it looked like. Let's go ahead and talk about it now. So let's do that. And when we think about this, as you mentioned, you know, 111 patients being overseas, someone's going to have to pick this up in the United States. And then there's going to be people that are going to, you know, bring a study the other way that shows, that shows morphine is the golden, uh, you know, is the golden drug and can just heart failure. I still think with our BiPAP in the, you know, in the, um, you know, in, in the ambulances, we're doing a better job of treating congestive heart failure. And we actually have people talking uh, by the time we get them to the hospitals that are being exacerbated. So I don't even know if pharmacology is going to be the wave of the future when it comes to treating CHF. What, so what does this do for us now? I mean, we got a little bit of information here, Jonathan. So what? Big deal. Now what? Oh, it makes me shudder to think all oh, the people who ended up, who I put on ventilators with CHF before we had CPAP and BiPAP. So um, what does it mean? It means you need to, everything in your practice, if you um, sort of look inside my head, everything in my practice, that's probably a better way of putting it, is the balance of risk and benefit, right? So if I give you morphine, um, what is the best thing that could happen and what is the worst thing that could happen? And if I don't give you morphine, what is the best thing that could happen and what is the worst thing that happens? So what I think this does is skew the balance of risk and benefit when it comes to um, morphine in, in congestive heart failure. Um, one of the things that the authors wrote quite uh, clearly in, in their, in their uh, conclusion was that the early administration of nitrates and diuretics and things like CPAP are probably the safe way to go. And don't carry the adverse event uh, profile that that something like morphine does. So I'm not telling you that never to give morphine to somebody who has CHF. I am telling you if you give morphine to somebody who has CHF and something bad happens, it just got a lot harder to defend that decision. Yeah, and how do we flip that coin as to it? It got worse on its own, or we were the ones who made it worse, right? But I got to think, man. Even though with 56 people. Is, is there enough for somebody to say, we got to look at this more? We may have to take this out of the formulary when it comes to congestive heart failure. And to be honest with you, with CPAP, BiPAP being used in the ambulances, uh, we've probably gotten there already. But uh, again, there's no real proof to say good or bad. Yeah, so I think what it does is two things. Um, so for, the, for me, the one who's in the ambulance, this study makes me say, mm, yeah, you know what? The last three CHF guys I gave morphine to threw up. 
maybe that didn't really help, especially with the CPAP. So that study, like I said, this study makes me sort of, it makes the risks of giving morphine higher. Probably the more important part of this study is for you, the one who's doing the PhD. Because, mm. you know, the, the study that's going to change our practice is not going to have 110 patients. It's going to have 500 patients or 1,000 patients or, or 5,000 patients. Yeah. But for you doing your PhD, when you walk in and say, ah, I want 5,000 patients to just not get the treatment we've been doing for 40 years, they're going to say, Chris, why don't you just sit down while we think about this for a second? But if you can come and say, look, there's this mounting evidence that says, and this is the best evidence so far. This is the experimental stuff. Then, And all of the other stuff before this was not experimental. This is what gives you the juice to give that big practice changing study. So that is not just the trend for providers who need to pay attention to that, but also it gives the ammunition for you, the PhD researcher, to find us the answers. That's your job. I'll take care of the patients. you got to find me the right answers, man. I'll give it a go, man. I'll try to figure it out. But <laughs> I do want to touch a little bit about the work you're doing as well, because you're an expert, not only in pharmacology, I'm going to, I'm going to call you the master Jedi of pharma pharmacology, but uh, don't roll your eyes at me. I'm the host for Christ. <laughs> but you, you know, you, you are, you're an expert also in pediatric critical care and you yeah. do speak around the, you know, around the United States, the Northern, North America on pediatric care. You have uh kinder medic, um, kinder medic. Kinder like medic, I'm sorry. Except for medics. Yeah, so let's talk about it. I mean, tell me a little bit about the work you're doing and uh, let's spotlight your uh, your uh, work. So I think you should come and take my kinder medic, Chris, before you do your PhD. Because here's my thought. Um, we came through 10 years of me doing just kids. It was an amazing opportunity, right? Uh, and I, it led me to believe that regardless of who you are, paramedic, nurse, doctor, whoever, you're good at what you do. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor or a medic or a nurse. If you never take care of cardiac patients, you're probably gonna do a lousy job taking care of cardiac patients. And the same thing goes with kids. So I was pretty lucky to have this opportunity to just, just focus on taking care of kids. And then I also had the opportunity to realize that as medics, we are kind of the little offshoot of surgeons and a little bit later emergency medicine right? That's where our lineage comes from. And the way they do pediatrics is very different the way, than the way pediatricians do pediatrics. So I had the opportunity to learn how to do pediatrics from pediatricians, and it was different. Yeah. So the training came out of, it's funny that you were talking about your, your PhD uh, thesis idea that I, I haven't met too many medics who aren't scared of kids. And you know, the whole idea of, you know, stress leaves and PTSD, it's, it's, it's pretty ubiquitous up here. It's, it's, um, there's been, you know, legal challenges and, and legal changes and, and it's, it's this big push for awareness. And a lot of them, anecdotally at least, can be centered around kids. And one of the uh, psychologists that I work with up here says that resilience, real resilience comes from confidence and competence. So, um, you know, th that not that there isn't value in, in the other self-care things and that kind of stuff, but if you are doing stuff that you're good at, yeah. that's not usually the stuff that upsets you, right? It's the one-offs. It's like, I should have been better at this. I, you know, I don't do kids very often. You know, there's so many medics who are scared of kids and it's in their head that I took the time to develop a pediatric course 
that has the same sort of slant that my pharmacology articles do, which is I want it grounded in good, hard science. Yeah. I want to spend, I want to take, teach you the 20% of the things that you're going to use 80% of the time, yeah. right? Tell you, you know how to do this stuff. I'm going to twist, give you the little, you know, um, tweaks that make it good and work for kids. So that so you, is my approach to it. Yeah, I think that's really cool. So you have a course that you've developed? Yeah, yeah, I do course. I do a lot of about the course. Um, it's evidence-based. So um, <laughs> I'm a little disappointed in that uh, all of the, I'm up here in Canada, which is where I do a lot of my teaching. And, and I, I pulled a lot of the needs assessments from um, this, the work done by uh, EMSC, EMS for Children out of the States. Um, so they did a bunch of needs assessments. I basically took all the evidence that surrounded paramedics and how they feel about, and I use the word paramedic, EMT, like yeah, um, all the pre-hospital stuff um, and said, what do paramedics worry about when it comes to kids? And it turns out it's airway, it's access, and it is um, a newborn resuscitation. So I just built a course around that. Very cool very evidence-based, you know, the two or three things you need to know about each, and then add my sort of view on important parts of how to manage stress, how to manage families, how to manage all of those things um, that really are what get in paramedics way. We're good at medicine. It's the other soft stuff that kind of gets in our way sometimes, and we get in our own heads. And if I can help you get around that, then I'm happy. Sounds very cool, man. I like to take it. So uh, let me know when it's coming up. I'm going to jump in there and check it out. You know, I used to be the chair of the EPC course for NEMT. Mm -hmm. I used to do a lot of work with uh, EMSC. And one of the things I talk about even in my leadership lectures is what's the number one call that gives the EMS provider the most trepidation? And everyone will say pediatrics. And I say this, and I want everyone to know this. For one, if we know that that's a weakness, what are we doing to make it a strength? Are we just hoping that we'll never get a mother that hands us a three-month-old that's in cardiac arrest? Uh, that, that hope isn't a strategy. But even more importantly, as an EMS leader, if I know that my workforce has trepidation on dealing with pediatrics, what am I doing to help them make that a strength? Because if a mother does hand them a three-month-old in cardiac arrest, and that's the time they don't feel comfortable with that arrest, I'm just as culpable as they are. And that's one of the things that we need to be able to think about as leaders is making sure that our workforce has the ability to do the job that we're hiring them to do and that they don't have that trepidation. So it's really awesome. So, you know, you do speak uh, around the Northern Hemisphere, you know, I guess uh, North America, Canada, in the U.S. If folks want to get in touch with you and find out more about your course, find out more about your ability to come and speak for them, uh, what's the best way they could reach you? Uh, the all of my consulting and teaching and that kind of stuff runs through uh, Kindermedic. So it's www.kindermedic.com, K-I-N-D-E-R, medic.com. And then most of my sort of professional social media stuff is uh, through Twitter. So at that John Lee, J-O-N-L-E-E. -E. Um, I'm usually fairly on top of that stuff. And that's probably a pretty good way to get a hold of me. And, and that there's a, an email through the, uh, the, the website as well. So just jlee at kindermedic.com. And I think that stuff is posted um, on the frontline farm. It is. Yeah. And I'll we'll make sure we put it in the show notes too, John. Perfect. So people will be able to reach it, but I got to tell you, you got to promise that you're not going to make me hunt you down like oh. I do to get you on this show. I thought you bumped me for the fire chronicles guy last week, man. And I can't keep up with that guy. 
No, no, it wasn't. We were a week behind, so there was another one. There was another one. Okay, right, I'm about to we'll arm wrestle for the next one. All right, one. we'll do that. We'll do that. Yeah. Man. I'm going to let you win, though. I'm going to let you win. <laughs> Um, but thanks for joining us. And, you know, for everybody out there, if you've not read John's article, check it out. I mean, he's got so many great articles. And really, I look forward to his articles coming out every month. Uh, when it comes to pharmacology, I got to tell you, man, we started getting into these days, these days of IV pumps. And I think they're making us as paramedics lazy, right? We need to know the indications. We need to know contraindications. We need to know dosages. We need to be able to put these dosages and, and spit them out out of our heads and not worry about from an IV pump. I mean, do I sound like an EMS dinosaur? But uh, he's got great stuff, and I look forward to it coming out. Everybody out there, I want to thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. I'm Chris Subalera, and for Kelly Grayson, we're going to catch you next, next week. Don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at EMS1 Video. And we will be back again next week. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, go ahead and send us an email at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. I mean, so much stuff we got to spit out now. But uh, for my uh, guest, Jonathan Lee, we'll talk to everyone again next week. Thank you, Chris. See you next time.